Welcome to African Roots, brought to you by DW. In this podcast series, we discover how individuals from across Africa shaped the continent. I'm Kai Nebe, and together with Leila Johnson-Salami, we'll introduce you to some household names and some others who may have stayed out of the limelight. Their stories range from the heroic to the tragic, some affect our lives today, while time has buried the legacy of others. But what binds them together is their African roots. I'm Kai Nebe, and joining me from Lagos, Nigeria, is Leila Johnson-Salami. Hi, Leila. Hey, Kai. How are you doing today? Uh, Leila, I just got one question for you. Now, like, Were you much of a history nerd at school? Mm. Kind of, sort of. I mean, I was a big fan of black history, and although I wasn't the greatest listener, I must say, Kai, <laughs> um, the known names and stories were, of course, hard to miss. Um, I also didn't really start history classes until the seventh grade. I mean, I do wish it was offered sooner, but the story was very different at home. At home, it was history, history, history. <laughs> I remember one of my half terms when my mom told my brother and I that we were going to spend the entire half term watching Roots, the series, um, the story about Kunta Kinte. Trust me, Kai, that's a half term I will never forget. <laughs> yeah, and also a classic series that is very hard to forget. Well, this is our first African Roots podcast. And for our listeners, Leila and I have been digging up the stories of two different personalities who did drastically shape the African continent. You know, as we started digging up stories for this podcast, I realized how little I actually know about these first two people. I mean, beyond even these two people who influenced and shaped my family and country's uh, trajectory, I must say I have certainly learned a lot. DW African Roots for this first episode, we're going to be talking about two people from East Africa who, despite living in different centuries, had a few things in common. To say the least, they were a thorn in the side of European powers with imperial ambitions. Oh, yes, they were. And they also share a peculiar connection to the late Jamaican reggae legend, Bob Marley. Bob Marley, you say? Uh, I really want to hear how that one pans out. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you worry, Kai. You wait and see. But first, go on. Tell us who your man or woman is. Okay, let's. L I see the game you're playing, and let me just set the scene straight up. Uh, I want to take you back to 1923. Almost every African country at this stage was a colony. None of them had barely any clout on the international stage. Europe was still picking up the pieces from the devastating First World War. And to avoid a repeat of such a catastrophic event, the League of Nations was formed. It was, it was basically a precursor to the United Nations. So what's so special about this particular year, 1923? Or is that it, Kai? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's... Yeah, sure. That's it. That's how basic we keep it here on African Roots. See you next week. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> no, okay, seriously. Uh, let's go to Ethiopia in the 1920s. And this country actually becomes the first African nation to join the League of Nations. And Ethiopia had actually never been colonized. And their leader at this stage is a gentleman known as Rastafari Makonnen. And he had this idea that the League of Nations was the platform to really make African voices heard. Honestly, I found out about Ethiopia being one of two African countries to have never been colonized during the scramble for Africa just a few years ago. And I must tell you, Kai, like I felt so much strength in that. Tell me more about Rastafari Makonnen. Rastafari Makonnen is this 
guy that you probably have heard of under a different name. He later in life became known as Emperor Haile Selassie, or some people even refer to him as the Lion of Judah. But let's stick with Rastafari for now. See, at the time, Ethiopia was undergoing a lot of change. In 1922, for the first time, the country actually got a regular newspaper, and it was established in the capital Addis Ababa, and Rastafari was seen by many as kind of the guy driving the change. Now, correct me if I'm wrong here, Kai, but Rastafari was a monarch, right? He was a monarch, and to be clear, the pace of change was not exactly fast. Rastafari himself was complicated. He was a traditionalist monarch at the end of a long dynasty, but he realized it was important to actually try and modernize Ethiopia. As an aristocrat, his privileged upbringing meant that he got a good education, relatively speaking, and he was always primed to take over the Ethiopian throne. You've got a man in charge who, on the one hand, wants to drive change, but also wants to cement the monarchy's grip on power. These were the visionary times of the young Rastafari Makonnen. That's the voice of historian Lej Asfawasan Asarate. He's the great-nephew of the Emperor Haile Selassie, and he lives in Germany. Here, he was the champion of all liberal-minded Ethiopians. He didn't only have friends at that time. There were many Ethiopian princes who didn't want that kind of westernization in Ethiopia. Rastafari officially became Haile Selassie when he was crowned emperor in 1930. And a year later, he introduced a new constitution which established a parliament. But remember, this actually had limited powers and importantly also solidified the monarchy's power. Now, I mean... Putting an asterisk out here, okay, putting an asterisk out, he does sound a bit like a reformer. Yeah, you're right. And this is just, you know, the constant battle of Haile Selassie's uh, career, balancing modernization with expectations of the Ethiopian monarchy. Not just that, though. In the 1930s, Europe was gearing up for another war. Fascist Italy, an Axis ally allied to Nazi Germany, also saw Ethiopia as a prime target for the taking and actually invaded Ethiopia in 1935. So one of Africa's last uncolonized regions was now under threat. What happened to the emperor? Unfortunately, Haile Selassie was forced into exile. Uh, and this was unfortunately also before any of his modernization drives could really be pushed through. However, the, the situation of him being forced out of Ethiopia and into uh, exile actually gave a, a surprising amount of international um, recognition and exposure. And this happened in particular in 1936 in Geneva. Again, we're in the run-up to World War II, uh, the League of Nations meets, and Haile Selassie appeals for support against the fascist Italians who have uh, invaded Ethiopia. So paint a picture for me here. How, how hostile are we talking? In the run-up to World War II, you, you know, things like fascism and Nazism were a big part of what Central Europe was becoming. So here you have Haile Selassie appealing for help against the invading uh, fascists from Italy. And, and apparently in the gallery where he was making the speech, Lej uh, Asfa Wassen describes fascist journalists whistling and catcalling um, as the emperor was making his speech. 
continued his speech, and one sentence that has rang in my ear all these years was the small match that has been lit in my country will engulf Europe as a great fire. These were indeed prophetic words. Well, he wasn't wrong about that. Indeed, but Haile Selassie remained in exile until Allied forces drove Italy out of Ethiopia by 1943. And after the war, Haile Selassie actually traveled really widely because, remember, while he was overseas, people actually recognized him as one of the few independent voices from the African continent. He was actually the first head of state to visit West Germany in 1954 and In 1963, Haile Selassie presided over the formation of the Organization of African Unity, itself also a precursor of what would later become the African Union. And this really marked a huge moment for the continent. On this day, we look to the future calmly, in full faith and courageously. Today, we look to the vision not only of a free Africa, but also of a united Africa. So we have talked a lot about Haile Selassie's profile overseas, but the picture back home was unfortunately very different for Haile Selassie. Uh, he became increasingly autocratic and he in, he he would ignore the disenchantment of the local people. There was a coup attempt in 1960, uh, economic hardship, the devastating wallow famine, and very importantly, a, an increasingly discontented army. All these efforts in foreign policy were not matched by interest in internal affairs. And this was his greatest mistake. He let things go unnoticed in his own country. So when finally the revolution came, there we were with an aging emperor. We were expecting the final call. Everybody knew the volcano was about to erupt and nobody was in a position to stop it. Emperor Haile Selassie's reign and the rule of the royal family ended when he was deposed in 1974. The Soviet-backed Derg regime that replaced Haile Selassie would rule Ethiopia until 1991. Haile Selassie died under house arrest, aged 83 in 1975, but many people also believe he was actually assassinated. When we come back, we will be meeting another royal leader who also died under house arrest, has strong links to Rastafarianism, and is honored by Bob Marley. DW African Roots. Find new African Roots episodes on dw.com slash African Roots, Spotify, iTunes, and wherever you get your podcasts.
Welcome back to African Roots. I'm Kai Nebe. And I'm Leila Johnson-Salami. For those of you who are just joining us, Kai has just told me about an Ethiopian leader, Haile Selassie. Now, this was a man with a large international profile, almost mythical to a certain extent, but whose legacy was arguably undermined at home. Right, but I guess when one is looking at the story of Haile Selassie's reign, You have to see it in the context of the time. In the 1930s, for instance, he was pretty much the only black leader of a sovereign state. But the myth around him actually went much further, and it's possibly best exemplified by the Rastafarian movement that sprung up among the African diaspora living in Jamaica during the 1930s. For people oppressed by European colonialism, Emperor Haile Selassie as an African leader was quite literally seen as the second coming of Jesus. Well, Kai, we are definitely staying on the trajectory of spiritual myths and standing up to repression because these are factors that play a large role in the person that I'm going to introduce you to today. Oh, really? And... Please do tell me, how exactly does Bob Marley figure into all of this? (laughs) You didn't forget about that. (laughs) Well, your Haile Selassie, whether he knew it or not, was a central, central figure of Rastafarianism. Now, one of the world's most famous Rastas, if not the most famous, and I'm talking here about the one and only legendary Bob Marley, released a song in 1983 that goes like this. Okay, Jump Niambingi, is that right? That's correct. The song honors an East African woman who lived some 100 years ago in what is now Rwanda. Now, Niambingi is a spiritual name that's attributed to Queen Muhumuza, who even British, German, and Belgian colonial forces feared Kai and described as an extraordinary character. But hold on, if she was kind of the enemy of three different colonial regimes, why is she someone, why have we not heard more about her? Now, that's a very good question. You know, she lived at a time when women didn't really feature in public life. And don't forget, a lot of women's history has also been continuously erased over time. Muhumuza was also a victim of royal infighting in the Rwandan courts, being exiled after her husband, King Kigeli IV, died in 1895. But this is actually where her reputation began, Kai, because at the time, Rwanda became a disputed territory between competing colonialists, from Belgium to Germany and Britain. But Lila, how did Muhumuza, you know, you're essentially describing a a royal cast-off, someone who was no longer part of a royal family here, how did she avoid obscurity if she was kind of hated by the by the colonial forces but also not really welcome in her in her own house, as it were? Well, that's another great question, Kai. I mean, local elites did use these colonial ambitions to settle local scores, right? So Queen Muhumuza rebelled against the ruling German colonial administration and also the Rwandan establishment. So her profile grew rapidly probably because her influence didn't really rely on conventional methods. Mumza was operating from an area, of course, during the pre-colonial period, and there had been such a spirits, spirit mediums, and spiritual people using 
spiritual powers to mobilize the population. That's history professor Mwambutsia Ndebesa from Uganda's Makerere University. She was using a carrot called Nyabinji and used it as an ideology for mobilizing, also an ideology for uh, instilling courage among the, the fighters. So we can just imagine Queen Muhumuza as this powerful, intelligent and charismatic character. But sadly, as we've mentioned, there is little concrete that's been reported about her. The history of women was edited out of history because history is always in the service of power and the oral tradition history was in the service of men as well as kings. Imperial colonial history was also in the service of men. It was patriarchal history. It was a history that glamorized idealized uh, Europe and not Africa and whilst women suffered double tragedy in the sense that they were edited out as Africans and edited out as women. Wow, so the information you just told me, but how exactly do we know that part about her? Well, colonial records, Kai, because unfortunately those are often the only ones that have survived until now. And these colonial records tell us about Muhumuza's fighters confronting troops across the region. In the end, though, Queen Muhumuza's magic and her spiritual guidance was no match for modern European steel and weapons. So, in 1913, British forces arrested her and deported her to Kampala. She died there over 30 years later. Professor Ndebesa again. Having stood against the, the, the then order, she represents a different dimension of the struggle. And her image should be rehabilitated so that she becomes an inspiring model for those who are struggling against certain forces that put down the marginalized. And today, Muhumuza is remembered for her anti-imperial resistance. So that also makes her an idol of the Nyabingi mansion. And that's a branch of the Rastafari movement. So in a way, like Haile Selassie, Queen Muhumuza's spirit is carried with us today through the Rastafarian movement. Am I getting that right? You sure are. And, 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 and this is despite the fact that neither of them actually practiced Rastafarianism. I mean, just jumping in with Haile Selassie, he even... He was apparently bemused when he found out about the Rastafarian religion that was kind of created with him as the figurehead. Yep, spot on. I mean, in a way, yes. But I do think that both of their stories point to a legacy that transcends both political and also economic boundaries and even time, Kai. I mean, here you have a woman whose struggle is felt and honored by people from a different century a world away. Come on, that's pretty unreal, right? (laughs) That's where we will have to leave things for today. This is the first podcast of a series called African Roots. The project is a cooperation between Deutsche Welle and the Gerda Henkel Foundation. Special thanks to our producers Michael Springer, Maya Brown and Philip Zantner. Additional research from Jane Ayeko-Kumet, Jackie Wilson and Yilma Haile-Michael. I'm Kai Nebe. And I'm Leila Johnson-Salami. Join us again next time. We're driving down Jericho